one. Again, if you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll be glad to get you one. Luke chapter 21. Jesus takes here quite a hard 90-degree angle turn uh, because when Jesus has uh, been speaking in the temple, uh, he's been talking uh, about you know, really defending his own uh, character as they've come to assail his character and try and catch him in his words. And he uses this occasion to launch into a teaching on the end times. And so if your Bibles are open, we'll pick it up where this starts in verse 5, Luke chapter 21. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass. First, the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilence, and there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens, or from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom, which your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist, and you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. And Lord, we ask again and we invite your Holy Spirit now to speak mightily through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus, he leaves the temple. If you were with us last week, he was in the temple. That is where he was uh, defending uh, his character, but also asking the question of those that were his accusers, and he silenced them. And all that took place in the temple where he was teaching. But he leaves the temple, and he goes just east to the Mount of Olives. And he sits down there. We know he sits because the other Gospels, the other Synoptic Gospels tell us that they sit down there on the Mount of Olives. And if you sit on the Mount of Olives, you would be facing directly back at the temple, looking directly at it. And Jesus proceeds to answer three questions. They ask him three questions. Who's they? Well, the disciples. The disciples are who he leads over the Mount of Olives. He sits down and he has what is effectively a smaller, intimate teaching or Bible study. Now, the thing about Jesus is every time he speaks the Bible study, because he is the Word. Amen? It's always a Bible study with Jesus, because you're literally sitting with the Word of God. But he sits the disciples down, and he begins to answer their three questions. And it's often referred to, this, this time of teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. Have you heard that term? The Olivet Discourse. This is where this takes place. And without question, this is the greatest prophetic sermon ever preached. And although a much smaller group 
would have heard it than what was in the temple. This is reserved for the disciples that go over. He speaks to them. He's answering their three questions. But this great prophetic sermon, it's through the lens of this teaching that we look at all the other end times prophecies in the Bible. It helps us with all the other end times prophecies. This one is, sits at dead center. So when we look at biblical prophecy in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah or the book of Revelation, we want to understand how does it fit with what Jesus taught. Now, if you ask most people on the street, you, you go out to Hall Street or you go to Short Pump Town Center and you're just to do a, an interview with anybody, most people on the street, if you ask them, hey, did Jesus ever preach about the end times? If you ask most people that you work with, non-churchgoers, just say, hey, did Jesus ever preach about the end times? Most likely would have no idea one way or the other. But I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Um, and you probably have quite a few would say something like this. I think he taught about love and stuff like that. Right? Now that's true. Jesus did teach about love. The book of John has the most about that uh, as far as the four Gospels. But even though Jesus did teach about love, and even though he did teach about loving our neighbor, and even though he did teach about loving God, he also taught about the end times. And most people either do not know that, or if they did know it, they have very little knowledge of it. If you ask most Christians in the church when in the ministry of Jesus he gave his most definitive prophetic message or teaching about the end times. Again, if you ask most Christians in the church, say, hey, when did he give his most definitive teaching on prophecy, on the end times? Most would perhaps say they don't know when he did it. Well, if he did teach it, I don't know, somewhere in that three years. But it's important for you to remember that it was just days before the cross. Days before the cross is when he taught the most definitive message on the end times. See, Jesus here is teaching about the end of the age. And you see, once Jesus dies on the cross, just a few days after this teaching, once he's died on the cross, and then a few days after that, three days after that, he would what? Conquer death, which we'll be celebrating in just a few weeks. Then, after then, the disciples remember this teaching. Just days before the cross, he taught about the end of the age. But then he rises from the dead. And he, they would have the confidence that their Lord is the risen Savior that really holds the future in his hands. That makes sense? You think it's an accident that Jesus taught this just days before the cross? That he had no idea they were going to ask these questions just days before the cross? No, it was the providence of God. God wanted them to see just before he died on the cross, just they thought the world was going out like a light with his death, he was owning the future, and he was taking them far to the end of the age to understand he owns the current age, the past age, and the future age. But at this point, as he begins to tell them what's coming, I have no doubt they would have been troubled by what they heard. Did you hear the verses I just read? There's nothing fluffy or fun in them. Nothing. Wars, earthquakes, they'll deliver you even to death. This is not a recipe for getting people to sign up and say, hey, I want to follow you. I would like to be a follower. This sounds like the most fun 
possible religious option I've ever heard. No. They're not probably happy, but a little bit troubled by what they're hearing as they're looking over Jerusalem and he's explaining what will come. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in the Word this morning, The Temple and Times to Come. You can see it up on the screen. And we'll look at three things this morning from the text. Take note, take heed, and take heart. Now I mentioned that the Olivet Discourse began first with three questions from the disciples. Only two of them are cited in Luke. The other one you can find in the Matthew's Gospel. So there's these three questions. So I'm going to tell you what they are. Luke records two of them, uh, and the three questions are this. When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus tells them, you see the temple right there? It's going to be completely destroyed. We'll get into how that would hit them in just a second. But I first want you to just understand the three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what will be the sign of Christ's coming? They understood. It's, it's, it's interesting that on the one hand, they'd never understood or believed that Jesus was going to die and raise from the dead. But they, they did have in their head he was going to leave them for a period of time and come back as a ruler. That makes sense? They didn't comprehend that he would die and be crucified, even though three times he had told the disciples, I will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes. I will be uh, then delivered to the Gentiles and be scourged, crucified, and rise on the third day. Even though he had told them at least three times, three times recorded, could have been more times than that, but at least three times he had told them. They didn't get that, but they did have this understanding that he was going to leave, I don't know, go to Greece for a while and come back as a king at some point. So they had in their head, when will you return as king of kings and lord of lords? So that was their second question. When will be the sign of Christ coming back? And the third question they had, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign that this world will come to an end and God would usher in his kingdom? Remember the prayer that Jesus said, when you pray, pray as thus, thy kingdom come. Right? When will that kingdom come? When will this world come to an end and that kingdom would be ushered in? Those are the three questions. Now Jesus, he doesn't answer the question of when. And this specifically, he doesn't say, well, that'll be in 1962. There's no when answer. But he does tell them that they need to be watching. And he does reveal signs that are very observable and very recognizable. That's what he does answer. He doesn't give them every bit of the answer they want, but he does give them the signs and the observable things that will be noticeable. Clearly, the temple being destroyed is clearly going to be observable. Now understand that Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish by God's design and God's providence from the seed of Abraham, then through the seed of David, of the tribe of Judah. All the things that the prophecy said that the Messiah would have to come through this Jewish lineage, but not just Jewish. He would have to be of the seed of David, and he would have to be from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was Jewish. We know by his own testimony he came first to where? The lost house of Israel. First he came to Israel. He's received, being this Jewish Messiah, the exact one that God had sent, he's received the recent triumphal entry, right, on the coal of a fault. Uh, that, what word is that? Uh, the donkey. I've created a new word today. If you take foal and colt together, you get foal, but anyway. So he's uh, received this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, 
Worse words could have come out, I'm just saying. Um, uh, and he's received the praise of Hosanna, son of David, right? They understood he was what? The son of David. He's cleaned out and cleansed out the temple. That is the center of Jewish worship. And he's come in and said, this violates not only my father, but also the things written by Moses. And he clears out the temple. He's been teaching in the temple. He's been questioned and examined by the Jewish scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. So notice and understand that this end times prophecy is centered where? Jerusalem. The prophecy is centered on Jerusalem. The prophecy is centered on Israel. And the fact that the nation of Israel, here's the, here's the crux of where it's centered. It's centered on the fact that Israel has missed its Messiah. Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say what? Baruch Bashem Adonai, which is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said that. You'll not see me again, Jerusalem. He's speaking to the nation state of Israel. They had missed their Messiah. And even the second coming of Jesus, when you think about the words second coming, when Jesus comes in the second coming, where is he coming to? Well, he's coming to the world, but not just the world, specifically to where? Jerusalem. Not New York City. Not Hong Kong. When he comes back, he comes to Jerusalem. The world, yes, but specifically to Israel and to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. If you've been with us in our Ezekiel study on Wednesday nights, and as I mentioned, there's just one left. It'll be the week after next. So if you want to catch the last one, I'm, th- I'm sure it'll be enjoyable and helpful as, uh, as we kind of wrap that up. But you've seen the unfinished business. If you've been with us in our Ezekiel study, the unfinished business that still remains to be done in when? The millennium reign of Christ. And much of that unfinished business has to deal with who? The nation state of Israel. So as Jesus gives this discourse, there are cataclysmic implications for the whole world. Wouldn't you agree? Even though he's speaking to Israel, there's cataclysmic implications for the whole world because anyone rejecting Christ has a problem. True? Not just the Jewish state, but anyone. But even though there are these cataclysmic implications for the whole world, the emphasis here is still to the nation state of Israel and the coming time of what the Bible also refers to as Jacob's trouble. That's the center point. Note that Jesus, um, if you're taking notes, we want to start by taking a look at this take note here. If you're taking notes, it doesn't say take notes, but you can take notes. But take note, this is our first point we want to look at together this morning. And the fact that Jesus, he tells those admiring the temple, they ask him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of them? Well, he tells those admiring something profound. They've asked him about the temple. Well, first, they've, before they've asked him about the temple, and that, that question is not recorded here, but again, it's in the other Gospels. When they are looking at the temple, they're in awe of it. They're amazed by it. You know, it's not many things that, that you have seen in your own lifetime that you're amazed when you see them. But you're just I mean, like, how did anyone build this? Just amazing. You ever been to a, a structure or a building that you just, it, it's so ornate? 
Uh, and you look at it and say, this is just an unbelievable uh, structure. And people look at the pyramids that way when they go to the pyramids of Egypt and they look and say, how did they do it? And, you know, where do they get the mathematical ingenuity for this? And all these different things. And, uh, you know, whether it's the Eiffel Tower or just buildings that, that ha- they're iconic. And you look at them and say, that is amazing. It stood the test of time. And they were amazed at the temple. I believe uh, it, it gets a huge slight uh, in the world. It should absolutely be considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. And I believe it was more impressive than some of the things that are on the list uh, of the ancient wonders of the world. And Jesus is noticing that they're admiring the temple, and they, and they say, uh, look at all these beautiful stones and the adornment. And they'd seen all the donations that were going into it. And he announces something extraordinary and completely unexpected to the hearers, his disciples. We might think of it as a prediction, but understand Jesus doesn't make predictions. He states prophetic fact. You and I can make predictions. He's not predicting here. He's saying this will happen. You might say, I think so-and-so will win the election. I think this team will win the game. Those are predictions. He's making a prophetic fact because he knows the future and he owns the future. I want to draw your attention to three undeniable aspects of this prophecy. He says that the temple, not a single tone, will be left that will not be turned on its side or upside down, completely destroyed. One of the three things that he says that are undeniable aspects of this prophecy, first, nobody else was saying this. Nobody else was saying the temple is going to be destroyed. This was completely coming out of nowhere. No one else was saying, hey, the temple's going to be completely, utterly destroyed. He's the only one saying this. Number two, nobody expected the temple to be destroyed. No one else was saying it, but no one expected the temple to be destroyed. In John chapter 2, verse 20, it tells us that the Jews actually, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in how many days? Three. Was he talking about Herod's temple? No, he was talking about his body, the temple, right? Well, they didn't understand what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the gigantic temple that Herod had built, which was an extension of the one that Ezra and Nehemiah had rebuilt, and they thought he was talking about that. And they cited in John chapter 2, verse 20, they said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? Now, you've seen big building projects, maybe massive stadium arenas, I mentioned where the harvest will be uh, played tonight. I mean, that's uh, one of the most magnificent football stadiums in America. I don't remember how many. It took a couple of years to build or something like that. But they said that the temple, 46 years. Now, it was much of it was in completion before that, but to get it rounded to where it finally had the full breadth of what we would see uh, described by Josephus and others, they said, how are you going to destroy something or raise it back up in three days and he was speaking of his own body, but again, it, un- it helps us understand the breadth, the size, the magnificence of the temple. I want to show you a couple things so you can see for yourself. Now, this picture I took when we were in Israel. Uh, we were actually sitting on the Mount of Olives. This is the direct, if you were to sit, um, it's about, this is about three quarters up the Mount of Olives, this vantage point. This is my sight line, about three quarters up. Uh, this would be like a 50-yard line seat because I'm looking directly at what? The Dome of the Rock, which now occupies what used to be where the temple sits. Now, if you've ever wondered, 
If that's the Dome of the Rock, where did the temple sit? I've got it right here for you. It would have sat right like that. Not to the centimeter. This is not exact, folks. But generally, in general terms, if I was looking at the same sight line from the Mount of Olives, I would be looking. That is what Jesus, this is the perspective. They're sitting there. He's having a discussion. They're marveling at the temple, and he says, that'll be utterly destroyed. That's what they're looking at. They can't believe it. They're like, that? That's almost five football fields in length? That's how big it is. Much, much bigger than what's, what's there today, which is a, a, a two different mosques. You have the Dome of the Rock, and there's another mosque to the left, if you're looking. Pretty large itself. Most people don't recognize or even notice that one. But that area, almost five football fields in length, and massive stones, huge they don't even know how they move some of them. So they look at that and say, how is that possible? How is that going to be destroyed? So I want to give you a little additional perspective, just how big was uh, the temple. This is the, um, uh, the complete-to-scale model that was built. I can't remember the Israeli gentleman who started, he started working on it, I want to say the 60s or 70s. It took him years. He actually used... It had to be Jerusalem limestone that he used to build it, cut them into tiny little pieces, built it exactly to scale based on the writings of Josephus and others to make sure that people could understand how the temple dwarfed the landscape. You see how tiny houses look next to it? They're full family homes. Now over here, back where the, the, the high priest lived, he had a mansion, and, and we saw a couple weeks ago, I showed you the mansions that were actually, if you went straight down towards the Pool of Siloam, that area... But it gives you an idea how big the temple was. It dwarfed everything around it. It could be seen when you're coming on the horizon, and let's say you're a caravan of Arabian traders. You come up over the hill, and that is what you see, that massive, magnificent temple where the temple itself was in white marble with pure gold. And when the sun hit it, you thought you had reached heaven. That's what it would have looked like from a distance. And so it was magnificent. And this gives you a little rendering of what the temple and the, uh, the inner court and the outer court, what it looked like if you're looking straight. You'd be, this would be angled directly from the Mount of Olives, looking west. The temple faces east, but this is looking west towards it, and that's a good rendering of what it looked like. There's these four massive menorahs right there in each corner that you can see right there. So that gives you an idea of how magnificent it was. And then lastly, this gives you uh, a view of it from the opposite, from inside the city. Those other views were looking at it from the Mount of Olives. This is Robinson's Arch, which even, you know, even archaeologists say what a magnificent feat that was. They could carry so much weight. And we learn a lot about bridges and stuff by things that the Romans had done, that they had learned a lot of things that are still employed even today uh, in, uh, in load-bearing weight and things like that. But you've, you were able to kind of have hundreds and even thousands of people during Passover season going up and over that uh, walkway into the temple area. And said, look at the houses and things compared to the temple size. Just a magnificent structure. Nobody could understand. Nobody could understand the circumstances of how this could happen. That was the third point, if you're taking notes. Nobody else was saying this. Nobody expected the temple to be destroyed. 
And the third point is nobody could understand the circumstances of how it could take place. How in the world could the temple be destroyed? This is a good question at that time because Rome was in control of Rome was in control of not only Jerusalem, but Rome was in control of the whole world. Who's going to knock Rome off the pedestal to destroy the temple? Rome was the massive, you know, bully on the block that no one could touch. Like, how is anyone going to move Rome to destroy the temple? Because Herod, who was a puppet ruler for Rome, remember he had named cities uh, in, you know, like Caesarea, he had named after Caesar. Uh, he was tight with the Roman rulers. He himself would go to Rome at times and meet with uh, the Caesar himself, and he had built up the temple. So they didn't understand, how, well, how could that happen? And then on top of that, they thought God protected the temple. So why would God let anything happen to it? So they didn't understand those circumstances. And then the fourth point, nobody else was saying it. Nobody expected it to be destroyed. Nobody understood the circumstances. The fourth, nobody wanted to hear this. Nobody wanted to hear that it was going to be destroyed. Not the apostles. Nobody wanted to hear the temple would be destroyed. They couldn't believe it. You know, it would be like, uh, I'll never forget the first time I went to New York City. And I, you know, I went all over and I wanted to see the sights. I was there on a business trip and I had a Saturday to go around and I went with another guy that I was traveling with and we went down. And one of the places we had to go, because I love buildings, I had to go to the Twin Towers. I remember standing there looking straight up at them. It never dawned on me that they would someday not be there. Did it ever dawn on you that someday they'd not be there? It did not dawn on me. This was 1999. Two years later, they weren't there. I had no inkling in my mind that they would not be standing two years later. I was standing there looking up. I said, these are amazing. How in the world do they do that? You ever seen the pictures of guys in their 20s eating their lunch on a steel bar up there? And you're like, these guys are nuts, right? And they weren't built in the 20s, but some of the other ones, some of the other buildings in New York City were. They were built in the 70s. But still, I looked up and I couldn't believe that they would someday not be there. But if Jesus were to slide up to me and say, these won't be here in two years, he would be correct, wouldn't he? We couldn't fathom it, and they couldn't fathom it either. But he goes on, if you're taking notes. By the way, this is some of the rubble that's still from the temple there today. I took these when we were in Israel. Let's look at the next point, take heed. So Jesus, instead of spending much time on the destruction of the temple, he just simply says, it will happen. And I believe that when he says this, it is a marker for us to know that if that prophecy happens, you can trust all the rest of them. Amen? He says, I'm going to tell you something no one else is saying, no one else will say, no one else would know, and when it comes to pass, you will 100% know that all the rest of it's going to happen too. See, he takes something so bold and so distinctly that only God could know, and it's the proof point that all the other prophecy anchors to. The temple's destruction lets us understand that, hey, Jesus knows the rest of the story too. He says, take heed. Take heed, verse 8, that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. Interesting here, the first and biggest risk that Jesus talks about, make that the only risk. If you take a note, this is really the only risk, uh, is that of being deceived. All the other things in life 
can't actually harm us eternally, right? If I die in an earthquake and my soul is secure, I'm in good shape for eternity, right? If I die in an earthquake and I've been deceived and following a different Jesus, the earthquake was not the biggest problem, was it? This is what he starts with. He starts with deception. Deception is believing a lie. This is what happened to Adam and Eve, didn't, didn't they? They believed the lie. The enemy comes up and tricked them into believing something that actually put their soul in jeopardy for all eternity. According to Paul in Romans chapter 1, this is still happening nonstop around the world. People are still believing, and he calls it the lie. What Jesus warns of here is that in time, many people will use his name to deceive other people. Now, this wasn't happening at the time because the only, part, the only world that knew who Jesus was was there in the vicinity of Israel. There was no Jim Joneses down in the jungles of South America misleading people using his name, right? That would come later. Later, many people would take his name and say, I am a follower of Jesus. My name is Joseph Smith, right? And I have a new Bible. It's called the Book of Mormon, right? Or I have a new book. It's called the Watchtower Guide, right? So all of these other things, they'll come in the name of Jesus too. They'll even use names like Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. His name will be used. His name is used by many organizations. He's used by millionaire preachers that are just fleecing people out of their money. My name, Jesus said, will be employed in many many false ways. But this wasn't happening then. He said it would happen. It'll come later. The apostles would have to deal with this. People taking the name of Jesus and misusing it. They would create, what Jesus is telling us here is that later on, his name would be used to create some of the largest religious systems in the world, built to deceive people, all using his name. They would be works-based. They would have religious elements, but they wouldn't have the power of the Holy Spirit, and they wouldn't manifest in born-again conversions. But they would have thousands following after him. He said many will go that way. The scriptures will be used, but they'll be twisted into a different gospel. Paul speaks of this. Do you notice Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Listen to the words Paul uses. Paul says in 11, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that this would be another gospel, a different spirit, and another, it says, another, I'm sorry, another Jesus, a different spirit, and another gospel. Another Jesus, a different spirit, and another gospel. Jesus says, the time is coming when people will use my name, but it won't be my spirit, won't be my gospel, and don't go after it. If someone says, and this, there's pastors that preach this in America, you know, God doesn't care what you do as long as you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Oh, yes, he does. If you're transformed, you're supposed to turn from sin. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to do it. And in a few weeks, I'll be doing the first of my What, Why series, and I'll be doing What is Salvation? What is salvation? What does the Bible actually say? Not what people have come to think, but what does the Bible actually say? Let's look at the next thing. So the first thing is to take heed... We look to take note, and our last thing we want to look at this morning, take heart as we look at this um, heavy section between, between verses 9 through 19. 
what Jesus outlines in verses 8 through 19, I, I include 8 as well because uh, that will continue to happen through all time. There'll, there'll be deception right into the Antichrist. There'll continue to be deception using the name of Jesus. But what he outlines in verses 8, 8 through 19, if you look at all that, the deception of verse 8, and then starting with verse 9, look again at your Bibles in verse 9, when you hear of wars and commotions, and Matthew 24 says wars and rumors of wars, uh, be not terrified, for these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. Now, Peter warns of this. People would say, and Peter said, when actually when people start to say, you ever have a family member or a coworker say something like this? They're actually speaking prophetically. They just don't know it. Well, people have been saying that since 1900. You ever hear that? You, pre you preachers have been preaching that since the 50s. You preachers have been preaching that since the 1800s or the 1500s or since Columbus sailed or whatever it may be. Every time they say it, Peter says when they say it, they mock God's prophecy and they are proof that it's coming. Their very words, Peter said, they'll mock and say, where is the promise of his coming? When's it all going to happen? And Jesus says it won't come immediately. Remember the parable of the Minas just a few, uh, a few chapters back, um, and we looked at the parable of the Minas. Uh, it said that when, when the owner of the vineyard, he goes away for a, a long time before he comes back. Well, we've seen Jesus be away for a while now before he comes back. So it's not going to be immediate. So we have this period of time that is inclusive from the time of Jesus' ascension until now. But it gets very specific just before the seven-year tribulation and even specifically the first three and a half years of the tribulation. I think I put, let me see if I put one in here. I think I put one that helps you visually see. I'll come back to that in one second. Um, let me, let me show you this first, and then we'll take a look at uh, the timeline. Now, when you understand prophecy, when, if you've ever heard people teach on prophecy, uh, you'll hear different views. Some of them are quite distorted, uh, and, and I think that because of that, um, prophetic understanding of Scripture um, really, really is lacking uh, in the body of Christ. So you've got these four different prophetic views. Now, you'll find some Church denominations, some theologians will subscribe to one view. I mean, one of these four. Take, for example, an idealist view. An idealist view says that prophecy is largely symbolic or allegory. Let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the dragon. Because some would say, well, he's not literally a dragon. He's referred to in the book of Revelation as a serpent. Well, the reality is he really did take the form of a serpent for real in the book of Genesis, right? In the garden. So it is symbolic, but it also has symbolic because he really is real, and just like you don't want to get bit by a fiery cobra, and just like you wouldn't want to be attacked by a dragon, which we believe dragons are actually the word for dinosaurs, you wouldn't want to be attacked by T-Rex, uh, you also wouldn't want Satan running you down because he is there to seek and destroy. So the Bible calls him also a roaring lion. Is he actually a lion? No. But does he tear and rip asunder like a lion does? Yes. So 
Some say, well, all prophecy is just allegory. It just has a spiritual type, just has a spiritual meaning. That makes sense? That's the way they view all prophecy. It's not, not literal. There won't really be a Magog or God come down like we see in Ezekiel and attack Israel. That's just allegory. It's just spiritual type. It's like the battles we have in our own life. That's one view. Then you have the preterist view. What is the preterist view? The preterist view is that when Jesus spoke these prophecies in the Olivet Discourse, specifically the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark's Gospel as well as here, when Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse, that the preterist view is that all of this was just a short-term prophecy that was all fulfilled in the first century. For example, the temple really was destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. So the preterist view is all of this already happened. The disciples were delivered to the synagogues, like we see in the book of Acts. Peter and John, they were, they were beaten. Uh, Stephen, you know, you saw some of the early uh, followers of Christ. Stephen was stoned to death. They were put to death. The apostle Paul, all that took place in the first century. So they, the preterist view is that everything Jesus talked about already happened. Those books were closed at 100 A.D. Done. Then you have the historicist view, and this view is that prophecy was written as a historical account. So Daniel was telling us what Babylon did, or what Persia did, or what Greece did. It's a historical view. These things have happened, but they do have the historicists, many of them view all prophecy as historical, except that Jesus still has to return, which kind of blows up their theory. And then you have the futurist view, that many prophecies still remain unfulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled. Now here's where I land. When you say the scripture, all four come into play. It's not one or the other, it's all and. Because there really is symbolism in the Bible. There really are things that happen in the first century. There really are historical prophecies, and there really are many things that have yet to take place. Everyone tries to put God in a box, and you can't put God in a box. All four views come into play with understanding prophecy. If we have pure hearts, it'll all make sense. Now, it doesn't mean we'll have all the answers. Do you understand the difference? A lot of things in my life make sense, even though I don't have answers for them. All the prophecies will make sense, even if we can't answer every little detail about it. It's good to understand, again, that the bullseye of this prophecy the bullseye of this prophecy is centered on Israel. It's centered on the tribulation period up through the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But understand, even though it's centered on Israel, and even though it's centered on the first or, or the time of the end up to the first three and a half years of the tribulation, I'm going to show you the timeline in just a second, um, it has perfect prophetic application to the apostles and all through the church age. Does that make sense? Even though it's centered on Israel and centered on the very time of the end, Jesus has spoken at the really the critical boiling point near the end, end of the tribulation, that's the epicenter of the prophecy. It still applies to the outer rings, 1950, 1450, 1100 AD. It applies to all the church age. This timeline will help you understand that a little bit better, hopefully. So I used this in the, our Ezekiel study, and I added a little bit to it just to, uh, for today. The arrows aren't exactly where I'd want them, or you wouldn't be able to read anything, so they're actually farther apart than I would like them. But until you get an understanding, the Old Testament, then comes the cross. After Jesus ascends, 
all of this prophecy is in play. Everything under the dotted, uh, under the dotted line there, under the dotted um, curve of time, all this prophecy is in play. The early church, the Apostle Paul's uh, martyrdom, Peter crucified upside down, all that would have taken place in the first hundred year period there, and certainly they would have lived this prophecy, and they thought the Antichrist was people like Nero. And why wouldn't you? The guy was as evil as you could possibly get. So they would have thought, we're already living in the book of Revelation, but in fact it was not. It was just a period of that time. So all during this time, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, all the different things, Attila the Hun, the wars that took place, Adolf Hitler, World War I, World War II, all of that falls in wars and rumors of war in a larger scale 2,000 year period. But Jesus said it'll get way hotter at the end. If you think all that's hot, read the book of Revelation starting with the seals. It gets much, much hotter than anything the world's ever seen. Earthquakes that'll move every island out of their place. We've never seen that. Even though we've seen some massive earthquakes, even in the last 12 years, the one that hit Indonesia, the one in Japan, if you watch them, the footage of them, they actually make your skin crawl just watching them because they're, they're the power, you can see it, and, the, and, this, and just the impact of those things. But yet, bigger things, Jesus said, are coming even than those. So we have the Olivet Discourse, uh, I believe, is really towards the end. I, I, I like to give the analogy that if it's a baseball analogy, we are in the seventh inning stretch probably at minimum. If it's football, the two-minute warning is nearby. And then, even in sports, it gets more... You thought the game was tense in the first quarter? You notice how it's even more tense near the end? I mean, even, even 80-year-old grannies are chewing their fingers at the very end there, right? So Jesus said it's going to get... It, he compares it to labor. You think the, that labor was difficult at certain point. He goes, but when it's really about to come, the pain increase goes up. And so all of this is coming to a crescendo. In biblical prophecy, the things in prophecy, they keep repeating, but they repeat in a format that if everything in the timeline is meeting a fulfillment, but heading to a final fulfillment. Let me give the best example in the Bible of this. Jesus himself. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. We know this is about Jesus. But did you know it's not only about Jesus? This would apply to other people. Would David fit this criteria? Yes. Would Elijah fit this criteria? Yes. Would John the Baptist fit this criteria? Yes. Why? They were from the brethren. They were Jewish. God raised them up. They were prophets. They spoke the truth like Moses, and everyone had to hear them, but they weren't Jesus. So the prophecies were being fulfilled every time David comes on the scene. Deuteronomy 18.15 was refulfilled. Elijah comes on the scene. Deuteronomy 18.15 refulfilled. John the Baptist, Deuteronomy 18.15, refulfilled. Jesus comes on the scene, final fulfillment. Make sense? I was a kid, you ever play at those things that you, you pull a little rubber band and a little, uh, it spins and it makes it fly up in the air? It's doing the same revolution, but it actually reaches a high point. That's the way prophecy works. It's actually repeating. The prophecies repeat. This is why Jerusalem continues to be 
in the news, in the news, in the news. It's part of a repeating prophecy until it reaches its final conclusion. The rabbinical studies, they refer to this uh, as midrash. So we looked at these different views. All the views are employed when understanding biblical prophecy. Let's look in our closing minutes together just for a few minutes and then we're going to come to a close here on what Jesus outlines. Verses 9 through 10, he talks about wars and conflicts. Um, I, I want you to think of the end times as not like this. Remember the, end the final end period is a really, really brief seven years. Most of our presidents serve, the last, last uh, few presidents have served eight-year terms. That's one more year than the, than the actual tribulation. Isn't that hard to believe? The seven-year tribulation is not some massive amount of time. It's a short period of time, very short, very accelerated. But if you look at the end times that we're in, I believe we've been in the end times for a while now, most specifically since Israel re-became a nation in 1948. But even before that, I believe we had already entered in uh, the end times. And if you look at just the last hundred years, the amount, there was no airplanes before 1900. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no smartphones. There was no people just hopping in a plane and ended up in Tokyo later that day. The world has changed. Daniel said, in the time of the end, he said, speed and knowledge will increase and people will run to and fro. Daniel was talking about a time that he had not seen in his life that, that the world would be moving at laser fast speed. We're seeing that in our lifetime. But in the midst of all that, it won't stop wars and conflicts. G.K. Chesterton said, one of the paradoxes of this age is that it is the age of pacifism, but not of peace. Do you know that people tried to pacify Adolf Hitler? Did it work? No. It didn't work at all. You know, people are always talking about peace, and there'll be this peace accord. Do you know every peace agreement gets broken? All of them. Do you know that even if you put on your bumper sticker, choose love, not war, someone else will choose war? Did you know that? Did you know that there will always be some evil person in the world that's going to force war on everyone else, regardless of whether you protest against war, put up peace signs, dance around on Cal Berkeley's campus? And it's happened in the 60s, happened in the 70s, happens at all times. There will always be, and then there will be a final man, the Antichrist, who's going to bring the whole world into war, and he'll have sold everybody on peace. Well, the Bible has something to say about this. First Thessalonians 5.3, for when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains and a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The, God says, look, the world will cry out that it always wants peace, but it will always choose war. And there's no stopping it. Jesus said you'll not be able to stop, that the wars and uh, just conflicts will come. J. Vernon McGee said, wars identify the entire period until the Lord returns. There's been very few years of peace on earth. It's only when Jesus ushers it in the millennium reign of Christ. You could say, well, I just refuse to be involved in war. It doesn't matter. When a bomb hits your house, you're involved. Right? There's, you think the people that are in wars in Africa and the Middle East, you think most of them want that war? No. It only takes a tiny percentage of people to do a lot of evil. And Jesus said they'll continue to... And because there's demonic influence behind it. Do you understand that? That there's demonic influence that are pushing these things. It has to come to us. Jesus said these things must take place. Verse 11, he talks about earthquakes, famines, disease, 
fearful signs in the heavens. This all intensifies and uh, becomes even more pronounced as the approach of the tribulation and return of Christ. Or as we, you know, I just mentioned two massive earthquakes, two of the biggest in world history, Sendai and Indonesia, two of the biggest in world history, and they've only been since the year 2000. Famines, all over the world we still have that, and disease, cancer, AIDS, so many things. Fearful signs in the heavens. You ever seen, we now have signs in the heavens that our ancestors would never seen. We have satellite imagery of massive um, category 5 uh, whether they be um, hurricanes or we also have the F5, we can see them on Doppler radar of things like tornadoes. Our ancestors could never see those signs. We see them before they even come. We're glad we can see them before they come, right? We have all these fearful things and many other things that we could see. We know that, you know, Time Magazine, I remember reading one of the magazines a few years ago that uh, some of these solar bursts that come off the sun, do you realize they could knock out all of our power and, and electrical systems? We know for certain that it can do this. It's done it at times. So we see that there are things in the heavens. We never understood, our ancestors never understood solar burst. It took NASA being out in space to understand what in the world this even does. And now we understand, wow, if there was a massive solar storm coming off the sun at the right angle, it actually could knock out power. It could, your smartphone wouldn't work. You don't need a dirty bomb to do this. The sun can do it. Fearful things that are out there. Verses 16 through 19, uh, verses 12 through, um, sorry, verses 12 through 19 is all about persecution. And this certainly applies to the apostles and in the first century church there. Uh, they went through this. They were delivered to synagogues. But it's continued. Even today, Christians are being persecuted around the world. Church planters, pastors, missionaries, and some of the worst part of the earth are certainly are enduring this kind of persecution. I also believe that it's very possible when it says, um, you'll be hated for all men's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. This may be Jesus alluding to the sealed 144,000 in the tribulation period, that Jesus seals them and they can't be harmed until their mission's complete. You know, this happened to John. He was put in the Alipotmus because the Romans couldn't even kill him. All the other apostles were killed. They, they tried to boil John, he wouldn't be boiled. Right? So God can do, he can preserve. Jonah had this. He went to the vilest city on earth and he didn't even want to go there. And God protected him. Preach the message, protected prophets. So this may be an allusion to the 144,000 that are in the Bible. But again, think about this, and I want to come to a close, and I want to personalize this for us. Think about our life, and Jesus said all these things are coming. They'll be worse at the end. They'll be inclusive of the whole 2,000-year period, and then it'll even get really intense in the tribulation period, which I don't plan on being here for. I believe we're raptured before that. I don't have time to get into that study today, but We'll continue uh, next week in this chapter. But against the backdrop of think about the world today, global tensions, financial crisis, terrorism, famines, wars, rumors of wars, crime, organized crime, drugs, violence, gangs, the age of internet, nonstop entertainment, election coverages, nonstop election coverages, Hollywood, cancer, music, iPhones, suicide, smartphones, Facebook, sports, long, long hours, busyness, soccer camps, doing everything else, everything, life becomes a blur. Would anyone actually listen to you or me talk about these things? No. 
They will not. Unless the Holy Spirit's flowing through us. The world is a blur right now, folks. It's moving faster. Satan is speeding up. God is saying it's going to usher in. No one will listen to you or me unless the Holy Spirit is flowing through us because God penetrates through all the noise. Otherwise, they're not going to hear us. Many in the church, they see the speed of the world around us. They see the calamities. They see the busyness. They see the nonstop inundation. And people are reduced to in the church. Even maybe you feel this way. And I, I hope God speaks to your heart if you do. People are reduced to one or two reactions. Be silent and do nothing because no one's going to listen to me anyway. Or let's employ the methods of man to get their attention. Let's have celebrity pastors. Let's use greater marketing tools. Let's make sure we have whiz-bang technology to touch every single person's ear the second they wake. Or make sure that, our, that we actually have a personality profile that people will listen to. Let me read you as I come to a close here. It's called An Open Letter to Jane Ordinary. It's written by a pastor in Northern Virginia. I don't know how far back. Actually, a pastor in Arlington, Virginia. It was published in their church bulletin. Listen to what he writes. Dear Jane, I'm writing to help you shake this feeling of uselessness that has overtaken you. Several times you've said that you don't see how Christ can possibly use you. The church must bear part of the responsibility for, you making, for making you feel as you do. I have in mind the success story mentality of the church. Our church periodicals tell the story of John G. Moneybags, who's used his financial influential position as a witness for Christ. At the church youth banquet, we have a testimony from all-American football star Ox Kikstofsky, who commands the respect of his teammates when he's a witness for Christ. We are led to think that if you don't leverage stardom or have some big position in the business world, you might as well keep your mouth shut. Nobody cares what Christ has done for you. We've forgotten an elementary fact about the witness of Christ, something that should encourage you. God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. He has chosen the little things of strength and the small of repute. Yes, even the things which have no real existence to explode the pretensions of the things that are true, that no man may boast in the presence of God. When Jesus Christ chose his disciple, he did not choose Olympic champs or Roman senators. He chose simple people like you. Some were fishermen, one was a political extremist, another was a publican, a nobody in that society. But these men turned the Roman world upside down for Christ. How did they do it? Through popularity, they had none. Through position, they had none. Their power was the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Jane, don't forget, we still need the ordinary hands of Christ to turn the world upside down. Letter from pastor. Closed. True, huh? That's what we need in this day and age. The end times, not to be afraid. Jesus said, take heart. Don't be afraid. Be filled more with the Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you again. With the uncertainty of the world, not only now, but over the last 2,000 years, 
you've been faithful and true. You provided your spirit. You said not even to worry about what we would say, but Lord, as we spend time in prayer and in your word, you'd give us the words to say at the right hour. And that you could use our voices, even though we have no fame or popularity, Lord, you could use our voice to penetrate the heart of anybody that you bring us in contact with. And Lord, even though the world is moving at such a feverish pace and a blur, and it's dominated by sound bites and tiny little Twitter feeds, Lord, your word is still faithful and true. And we pray that you would fill us with belief, with faith. And Lord, you drive fear out of us, not be afraid of what is to come, but our fear of the Lord would give us a strong confidence, a strong tower to stand in. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Hey, if you're here, we have one last thing to do together this morning. The men are going to come forward. We're going to...